Body Anarchist, welcome. Hey, what's up, buddy? Good, how are you, man? Good. Lovely classical music to start the day. Right? Not a bad way to start the day. So I, I wanted to have you on for multiple reasons. We've been friends for a long time, but also you have a really interesting chart with which you basically predicted the top. And I was there when you when you made the call. Um, you were very, very clear about it. So we're going to put that tweet up in the nest uh, in a second. And you also predicted the bottom. I mean, with pretty decent accuracy, I think the bottom is most likely in, especially with the capitulation of, uh, of um, Goldbug's son. What's it? Peter Schiff's son? Uh, the guy had like a public capitulation. And I mean, that kind, that's the kind of things you want to see in a bear market. Uh, complete sort of surrender of, of previous bulls. You know, we saw Tina, uh, you know, basically uh, rage quit at 16,000. And uh, so that, that's the kind of capitulation. So we unfortunately end up seeing or have to see before we get, you know, a bull market. They're not the only signal, but they're a pretty decent signal. So, um, so I think the bottom is probably in, and, and, and I want to, I want to hear, first of all, we're going to put this chart up on, on the nest in a second, but also I want to know, um, how you, yeah, how you got to this, to this chart, what, what is the process and why this chart and not any other chart? You know, a lot of people here are not necessarily traders, but they are obviously interested in the price and probably savvy in economics. So I think the process by which you got to it is also very interesting. Yeah, so um, my background is in semiconductor process engineering. So I worked in a big semicon fab and we used a lot of statistics there to try and understand like which of our machines and tools were misbehaving um, and, and just in general to try and improve the process, uh, improve yield, things like that. And um, over the years, I had seen some other people do regression analysis. First, the, uh, the rainbow log. Um, obviously, Plan B has a type of regression as well. Um, <clears throat> obviously, he's not using quite uh, a time series, but um, I, I never really liked how you could see the the price of Bitcoin drifting through that model. And you could see there was a clear drift where it's like every new top didn't hit quite as high a colored band. And so I said, OK, um, it, it was actually quite a few years that I um, just kind of sat on it because I wasn't really I wasn't a trader. I wasn't paying attention. I was definitely of the mindset like. New paradigm going to happen today. Global adoption is happening. I remember 2017 going through that, and um, they had listed uh, Bitcoin on the on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and I was like, "That's it. The world is adopting Bitcoin now." And that was like literally the day at the top. So that was kind of instructive in my mind as we started to enter this new bull market. And I said, "Okay, maybe I should put those engineering skills to use and sort of create my own regression. Um, at least you know see what I can come up with, right?" Uh, and so this is kind of what popped out and. One of the key insights I think that I had is that the regression equation for the tops is not the same as the regression equation for the bottoms. And so there's kind of like there's really a very rigorous process you have to go through to validate your model because it's easy to pop some points into a spreadsheet and then click the, uh, the linear regression button in Excel or something like that. But it's not as easy to take all those data points um, and then to validate statistically that you have a model that's ideal. Because you could use a bunch of different equations. You have to do a bunch of different equations and say, okay, which one is giving me the most statistical accuracy? 
um, you have to do something called residual analysis, and that tells you if your model is drifting. It tells you if you're if you're accurately sorry, modeling sorry, all sorry, of the signal. Second. Um, sure, I just uh, I'm I'm struggling to put the tweet on the nest, but it's in the comments if people want to check it out. Uh, there's like basically little comments button on the bottom right, and uh, we'll get it on the nest day sub, so you guys can see what he's talking about. Right, so it's a it's a chart of the whole history of Bitcoin up until the recent bear market, and it's got the 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 algorithms and such. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's good. Thanks for interrupting. Um, also, uh, if you guys just click on my profile, it's like the top thing. I just reposted it. I had kind of posted a nerd version originally that um, it didn't show you the date. It showed you number of days since um, since July eighteenth, twenty ten. And uh, I just remember Juan telling me, like, bro, you've got to post a more user-friendly version. Like, I know the nerds will get it, but uh, <laughs> anyways, I appreciate you helping me out on that. Um, so anyways, yeah, just go to my profile, and it's like the first thing you'll see. Um, so it's basically what we have here are, are three lines. You've got an upper boundary. It's like the maximum. You could say it's the statistically maximum possible price. Like, whenever you approach that top green line, it's like you're getting, you're getting into the danger zone. It's like close time to sell. Um, and you have to understand, this is not like necessarily a fundamental map of anything. It's just statistics. It can be wrong. Fundamentals can totally cause it to break down to the upside or the downside, right? If we had a hyperinflation event, um, this model would break. Uh, perhaps if we had some other kind of like crazy failure, um, it could break to the downside as well. So just understand that it's, it can't tell you everything. It's just one of many tools that you can use. Um, so um, yeah, when it came to the top, what happened on, uh, when they announced, when Coinbase announced that they were going to list on the NASDAQ, and that was going to be April 14th, and we were like really close to the top, I was like, oh, crap. Uh, I remember this playbook. They did the same thing in 2017 with the, uh, the the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And so I said, okay, this is probably the top, and I was really insistent about it, um, and it kind of earned me a little bit of scorn at the time, but um, you know, it kind of ended up being playing out that way. Um, and then, so... Uh, I also had to do the regression for the bottom, and you'll notice that equation is actually more complex. And that was really the, – the top equation was actually not that hard, but the bottom equation was really tough. Um, you, I had to do a whole bunch of different stuff. I had to try it a whole bunch of different ways. You've got to do like this iterative process where you remove the top data points since that's a different equation. Um, but anyways, in – I can't remember the exact date. It was at the end of December. We came within 10% of the lower boundary of the red line there. And, um, yeah, I didn't perfectly nail the bottom, but I sort of um, – I do this thing that I like to call cross-check, and that is you take many different charts, you take many different sort of um, dimensions of looking at price, and then you say, okay, are all the signals lined up? Are they all saying the same thing? Are they confused? And I remember seeing a bunch of signals that were all negative, negative, bearish, and I kept saying for, like, all of 2022, like, no, we've got to – like, there's still more washout to happen, all these bankruptcies, all this fraud that happened. And then finally, when FTX collapsed, I said, okay, we finally have entered a moment where we have the opportunity to form a bottom. And um, like the dollar index turned around then, and um, a lot of the other signals like stock market, stuff like that, everything started to get confused, whereas everything was like universally down. And we had approached the bottom line within 10%. And I said, okay, this is really the time to start reaccumulating. I didn't like nail the perfect bottom, um, but I did, you know, my recommendation to people was to start reaccumulating. I think I said that maybe around like 17,000, um, 18,000. Um, so, I mean, I do remember when we crashed, I said, well, you know, it's probably responsible to start buying, say, 20, 30% of your stack. 
Um, and then all through January, I just like the signals kept lining up. They kept going from negative to green to green to green. So I just kept reaccumulating the whole time. And I kept telling everyone, like, as we started pumping, like, nope, this thing is it's game on here for at least a few months. So get in the market, stay in the market, don't sell. Like you're going to be tempted to sell. We've had so many crashes, but, but the direction is up now. Um, but anyways, yeah, this regression analysis um, was one of the big factors that helped me to call the top and helped me to identify the bottom or at least close to the bottom. So, yeah, and, um, and and you guys will see that this chart again. It's in the it's in the comments. Finally, it's on the nest. Thank you, uh, Lee. So if you if you have a look at this chart, it's very similar to what's known as the rainbow chart. Um, there's a famous Ethereum sort of troll that a troll. I mean, he's Eric Wall. He's all right, you know. He's he's pretty sharp. Anyway, he's famous for that chart because it's kind of like a rough version of this. But what 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 is particularly interesting about this chart? Uh, from Body Anarchist is that you actually used engineering grade mathematics uh, and statistical analysis in order to get to it. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that process. Like what is it, maybe in layman terms, what is it about this 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 approach to, to statistical analysis that's that's unique? Like why do engineers use this basically? So you might have heard something called a line of best fit. So whenever you have some data and it's trending, it's going a particular direction, um, you often want to draw a line of best fit because you would like to extrapolate what might happen in the future. And so um, you use all different kinds of methods. Uh, you can see the, the equations here somewhat complex. They're not crazy complex, but um, the uh, essentially for the layman, you're, you're just taking a bunch of data. Usually it's time series data. And you're trying to say, OK, is there any kind of trend here? And if there is, can we draw a line that the most closely approximates the data. And after we've tried a whole bunch of different lines, we're going to run some crazy statistical math magic stuff to prove that this line is actually the best line that you can get. Um, and then you have to run a few other checks as well. Um, there's like a bunch of dangers and pitfalls, but it's, it's useful for extrapolation. Now, extrapolation is dangerous, and anyone that uses regression will tell you to be very careful with it especially when you're on an exponential process. So when we say exponential, you know how we click that little logarithm, the, the log button to put the chart into a log scale because otherwise the chart just is hard to look at. That's an exponential process. We use the logarithm to make it look linear for our human eyeballs. Uh, but, but extrapolation is very difficult. Um, and especially when it's an exponential process, it's even more difficult. So it's just, it's really important. And I had to like plus up my knowledge of regression because we used to just use like very simple regression um, I had been trained on like a little bit like how to use more complex forms and how to do all your statistical blah, blah, blah. We never we didn't really use that too much at the factory, but I knew that I like if I wanted to do a correct regression, those things needed to happen. And I just remember seeing the rainbow log and I could you could see it drifting. Right. You could see that it wasn't like quite the right equation. You had to like subtract out a, another colored band for every single bull market. And so I knew like somewhere in the back of my mind that I was going to have to to like really um, bl uh, brush up my skills and, and like plus up my skills. So, but yeah, regression is basically just a line of best fit. And the, the key insight here for this regression that has made it useful for me is that that top green line is a different equation than the bottom red line. Um, there, for whatever reason, it seems like there's sort of two different economic realities. And personally, I think there's, there's kind of some hard economic realities happening there um, that are sort of limiting price. And until like sort of the fundamental economic landscape changes, you know, say hyperinflation or something like that, um, or you know, if you're Harry Dent, I don't know if you guys follow Harry Dent, he's a deflation guy. He said it's all gonna deflate and crash. But anyways, until like the fundamental economic landscape changes, 
I think what's happening here is these equations are modeling some real economic like realities, some hard economic realities. That's just my intuition, mm -hmm. my suspicion. You know, I can't exactly prove it, but um, hopefully that that gives you a good sense for, you know, what what regression is and why we do it. Right, and and you literally just posted a new version of the chart that gives us a little bit further vision into the future uh, with updated price. Um, tell us where this projection is going, and again, like. The reason I have you on is because I've known you for like, I don't know, Jesus, like six, seven years. And and I know you're very methodical and you're very like when you grab a, a technical problem, you don't let it loose until until you're shaking it out, you know. So I'm I'm, I'm confident this is you've been very careful with these projections and with the math. So like where where do you see us going? I see that the upper band uh, hits about 200,000 in 2026. Um, how do you think about this projection forward and, and, and the future of, of Bitcoin's price in this context? So um, personally, as a, as a trader, uh, so I've got to inject some of my own like personal um, ideas of trading that go sort of beyond the statistical analysis. I do think it's likely that we have one more washout coming either later this year, maybe early next year. Um, it could be the start of some recession, you know, for the United States. Everyone's kind of seen the inverted yield curve, stuff like that. Um, so I think it's possible we could have one more washout and actually hardcore touch that bottom red line. Um, that might be at like 20,000 or 19,000, maybe 21,000, kind of like in 2020, how the uh, the April, sorry, the March 2020 crash um, caused that final washout to, um, what was it, 4,000, somewhere around there. Um, so. But I do think it's likely this model could hold up, especially going into the next few years. Um, we are seeing some pretty big news events, right? We're seeing the BlackRock and Fidelity ETS. Um, we're seeing a whole bunch of regulatory attacks, and some people say choke point 2.0. Um, look that up if you're if you're curious. But it looks like the banks are kind, or sorry, the some aspects of the federal government are trying to choke out crypto, including Bitcoin, from participating in the financial system. But in a way, that's almost a good thing, because when all those attacks resolve, there's going to be a big impetus. And when regulatory clarity emerges, that's going to be a big push, a big ability for people and corporations to say, no, I want to buy Bitcoin. Um, and I think we're starting to see the beginnings of that. So um, but you also have to understand that as liquidity grows and as price moves higher, it gets much harder to push the price. Right. It's much harder to push the price of Bitcoin around than it is to push the price of some, you know, small cap shitcoin. Uh, so. As price grows, you know, people think that's that's why people think in these big multiples like, oh, well, we had multiples of 20x or 100x last time. That's where we're going to get this time or maybe only 50x, you know, but I'll still be, you know, I'll get, I'll get mine. Um, and that's the, the problem is that as the liquidity grows and as these companies onboard, it gets harder and harder to move price to the upside. So um, sorry to, to go off on that side tangent, but that's some context for how I think um, things could unfold. I do think 200,000 uh, if we have the four year cycle and it seems like things are lining up that way. If we had the four-year cycle, we could definitely hit 200,000 um, by the end of 2025 or early 2026. You'll notice that's kind of where the chart cuts off, and I, I kind of did that on purpose, so you know, because people tend to think in the four-year cycle. Um, you'll notice though that the bottom, the the bottom red line there is still at uh, just above like 42,000. Uh, technically, that would be on January 1st, 2026. That would be 48,600, so about 50k. But that's nice because it, it sort of does form this lower boundary. Um, I also, um, to kind of inject a few more of my own ideas here, um, if you'll go back and you look at 2015 to 2017, and you'll notice how we just kind of trended in between the yellow and the red lines for a little over a year, um, 
I think that it's likely that we could see something like that unfolding here um, over the next year. And it, it could take another real like year, maybe year and a half before we really start to hit a big uh, kind of bull market. Um, I, it felt to me like the way that 2013 and 2014 played out and some of the dynamics behind that that bubble, that pump, um, it felt a lot like what happened here in this last bull market. So in some kind of ways, I, I want to think, OK, well, if it, you know, if the fundamental structure was similar back then, it, it's much like obviously it's much larger this time. But I, I do think that fundamental structure back then is sort of what happened this time. So maybe we'll see a similar bear market. But at any rate, like. That's really not that bad because the worst that can happen is we'll go down to like maybe 18,000 at worst, but maybe probably more like 20,000. Um, and then people will just start buying, right? Everyone that like that thought that we were going to like, because I, I knew a lot of even maximalists are like, no, 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 we're going to 10,000. We're going to 8,000. I'm going to load up my bags. We'll go to 3,000. And then a lot of them kind of got caught out um, because, you know, they didn't they didn't think that was the bottom. So I think a lot of those guys that maybe didn't get as much as they wanted to will probably start buying again at 20K. So um, I, I do think that uh, there's we probably have bottoms, uh, kind of like you said, one. But um, I do think there's still more time that we've got to sort of slowly climb, establish this space, establish this range. It might feel kind of boring, um, but I do think that's probably what we're looking at going into the future here over the next couple of years. Yeah, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're still far enough away from the happening event that we could definitely have another COVID-like crash or some other liquidity crisis or any of a variety of things that in a weaker, let's say, market, not in a full-on raging bull market, would take us down and make us test support, right? So I, I also think that we could have another week down, but I mean, in general, you know, it, it looks very similar to last cycle. And um, anyway, I, I, I'm of the feeling that we've, we've, we've bottomed, but we still have some more consolidation and 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 support to build before we really take off. Though, of course, ATF, BlackRock News, if that really goes through uh, the way that they're painting it, it could be a seriously bullish event. But anyway, thank you so much, buddy. I really appreciate that. And guys, check out that chart and check out his profile. He's a uh, pretty sharp and a critic, not a partisan, but uh, I think he, we're all kind of aligned on the same same vision of the future, which takes us to um, you know the conversation we're gonna have today with Tomer uh, Strollite. Now, before we we jump into in, into this this chat with you, Tomer, uh, Luke, do you have any any thoughts? Anything you wanna you wanna mention? I know you're a pretty sharp analyst as well. Oh, I uh, I, I didn't know we were doing an interview. I'll jump off. I was just gonna quickly uh, add a little bit of a different perspective out there about the uh, models because. Um, I'm of the firm belief that all models are going to be destroyed in the not too distant future. And I think like trying to model Bitcoin like uh, on its past, you know, 13 or 14 years of data into the future is probably, you know, destined to fail uh, with all due respect. Like I think Bitcoin's captured 0.05% of its total addressable market and what less than 1% of the world has bought some Bitcoin. So I think to kind of model that data of the first 14 years of Bitcoin into the future um, is, is probably going to be very different because I think obviously we all know technologies get adopted in an exponential fashion. What happens when the other, you know, 99% of the world all comes to the realization of what Bitcoin is uh, in a fairly rapid amount of time? I mean, that's what technological adoption curves uh, kind of model and show us about all technologies that get adopted by the mainstream 
typically it's very slow adoption for the first 10 years when nobody pays any attention to it. But when everybody starts to pay attention to it, adoption happens very rapidly and all of these beautiful models built in the first two to five years or 10 years of a technology's adoption all get broken to the upside because our brains just can't imagine exponentials. So I think all these warning signs we've seen since 2020, like BlackRock, uh, public companies buying Bitcoin, nation states stacking Bitcoin, they're the leading indicators that show you that the masses are probably about to flood into Bitcoin. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen quicker than um, most people believe. I didn't want to open up another can of worms and distract from the conversation that you guys are probably going to have. That was just a perspective I wanted to put out there because I think uh, modeling things can set a lot of people up into the future to sell a lot of Bitcoin at 100,000 or 150,000 or 200,000 because they think that that has to happen because of a because of a, a flawed model. And I just think a lot of people are going to sell Bitcoin far too early. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing is price. Another thing is how to actually navigate it and survive. And that's that's more risk management. Uh, but yeah, hopefully if, if the, all the models break and fail, hopefully they'll fail to the upside. Uh, Buddy, feel free to respond and we'll we'll get into the interview. Hey, thanks, man. I, I just wanted to make a quick response. So first, Luke, I just want to say that um, this model will break down. <laughs> like I can guarantee it. The, uh, you'll notice that bottom line is moving up faster than the top line. They're going to cross paths in 2037. So the model eventually will break down. And it's like I said early on, it's just a statistical model. It can't tell you fundamentally um, like how fundamental events could change. So, um, but at the same time, uh, like I said earlier, you know, there's, there's, there's the potential that, um, sorry, when, when you start going up in market cap, when you start going up in liquidity, it gets much harder to move the price, right? Um, so all I'm saying is that as you start to approach 150, 200,000, you need like exponentially more investment um, to actually move the price up, which could happen, right? It, it's possible. Maybe you're right. Maybe we get some like banks and central banks start using it as their reserve currency. They start buying, you know, a trillion at a time, something like that. But um, anyways, I just kind of wanted to agree a little bit there. I wanted to disagree. One thing, so one way you can manage that risk, if um, let's suppose we hit this upper boundary in 2026, right? We hit the, the 200K price. One thing that I like to do is separate my HODL stack from my trading stat. And maybe that's just because I'm a degenerate trader, but um, you know, I'll always have some in play, even if I think it's the top, be like, nope, I'm going to hang on to this. It's digital freedom money. Like I'm not, I'm not going to sell a certain portion of my stack. And that protects me against the risk of being wrong. Uh, which was also something I had to do, uh, think about in 2021 because everyone told me I was wrong. I said, okay, well, let me you know, figure out a strategy to protect myself in case I am wrong. So I was prepared for all scenarios there. Anyways, thanks for the chance to respond and thanks, Juan, for uh, the opportunity to come on the show. Right on. Appreciate it, buddy. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the best things I've done is actually take out some profits on the top and build the house. And so now I can shelter and survive a bear market without having to pay rent, you know? So like, it's important to think about that. Like you wanna be able to survive a bear market so that you're not forced to sell the bottom of bear market, right? And you know, we're all money nerds, we're all Bitcoin nerds. I think we have to be somewhat sophisticated financially, but you're totally right that trading is very risky and a lot of people lose their, lose their shirt trading. So you shouldn't really trade, you just gotta learn how to manage money, right? But um, anyway, thank you, Luke, thank you, Body, and uh, Tomer, uh, Thomas uh, Stroll, I thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Uh, glad to be here. Awesome. We have a lot of people listening, which is wonderful. Everybody, please share this this show. We're going to start talking about 
you know, we started talking about the price and the future and where we might be in a few years, but now we're going to go way deeper into the future to talk about what society might actually look like in the future. So may, please share it so that people get to see it. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, Tomer, you're editor-in-chief of swan.com. You've, um, you've directed uh, a couple of films that Swan has created, and we'll put those on the, on the nest in a minute, but um, tell us a little bit about your background. And, uh, you know, the, it seems like you come from the film industry. Uh, you guys really have to check out these videos. One of them is five minutes, the other one's 15 minutes, and they're both fantastic, powerful, and inspiring. Um, wh what is your background before you get into Bitcoin? What were, you, what were you up to back then? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in my early 50s, uh, and I spent most of my career actually in the newspaper industry. Uh, so in the digital side of the newspaper industry, to be honest. So I, I graduated with a master's in business at the time that the internet was just kind of becoming a commercial thing, uh, even a little bit earlier than that, uh, when people were doing stuff on CD-ROMs. And so I got involved in digital media when it was really, really early um, and had the opportunity to kind of ride along with the internet as it disrupted traditional media and changed it all. And I mostly did business work rather than content work. So I don't have a filmmaking background. I, I don't even have a writing background, even though that's mostly what I do. But uh, after a couple of decades of, of doing business in, in the digital media space uh, and watching the disruption and studying philosophy at the same time and economics, uh, I stumbled across a Bitcoin and uh, fell down the rabbit hole and it took me on a it took me on a quite a journey, uh, which which I've documented through my writing and through the movies that I've made in a sense. Although they're not uh, they're not biographical, I think the biographical experiences that I've had and the the insights and revelations that I've had have tried to uh, bring to life in different styles. So not just uh, in nonfiction essays, but in fictional work and in these pseudo documentaries, which are somewhat you know, a port like the film Bitcoin's Generational Wealth is the first portion of it, the first seven minutes of it might be considered a documentary. People call the whole movie a documentary, but the last seven minutes of it is all about the future. And I'm not documenting the history of the future. I'm trying to uh, project uh, what might what might come given what we've seen and what's changed this time. Right. Yeah. And um, again, we're going to put the, the, the links on the nest in a second, but uh, one of the films, the five minute one, which is, you know, very accessible. And I think it's, it's just the right length of film to get very wide attention, especially in the age of Twitter. Um, but uh, I really loved, I just wanted to compliment you on, on one aspect of that film, which, you know, the, the, the whole, like, I think like the first three and a half minutes are shot in like analog sort of uh, pre-digital camcorder, you know, like a lot of the, the, the film is, it looks grainy and looks like from the like 80s or something. And then when we, when you, when, when the film starts talking about why Bitcoin is beautiful, it shifts into like a uh, proto AI film, you know, like the earlier, earlier AI vi generated videos that are basically a bunch of you know, wobbly uh, JPEGs one after another creating a, an AI film. 
and uh, that was really uh, that was really powerful. That really hit me because I'm really into AI. I'm, I'm really interested in it, so I could see the the, well, the impact there. Mm-hmm. All credit for the creative execution actually goes to uh, Matt Hornick, who goes by the handle at Director Hoddle, uh, who who really right. uh, took, brought it, brought both of those films to life. Uh, in both cases, I I wrote the narrative, uh, and he brought it to to visual life. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that was that was that was amazing. That really uh, that really shook me. And uh, yeah, you guys you guys had to check it out. So let's talk a little bit about about where the these stories, how these stories develop, and what you guys are talking about. Um, you know, you in the fifteen minute film, which we're also going to link. Um, you mentioned a variety of things that in, in a future that I think a lot of people want to see. You know, we want to see sustainable agriculture. We want to see food without hormones and antibiotics in livestock, healthy soil, healthy nutri- uh, vegetables and fruits. Uh, basically just a healthy earth and sustainable society. And, 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 and you mentioned that, that how that works around sound money. And I, and I want us to go back to that and, and try to strengthen that link. Cause it's not obvious to me. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a necessarily a health guy by that's not my primary, it's let's say interest, but it's obviously something that I care more and more about as I get older, you know, but you know, we, we could have a future where there's, you know, uh, a lot of great things, right? Free education, very high quality education, uh, cheap real estate, uh, so many things. Maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, that future that you imagine in that 15-minute film, and then maybe we can get into the details well, a little I'm, bit. I'm having some connection difficulties. Are you able to hear me? Yes, I can hear you okay. Can you hear us? I'm going to quickly leave and rejoin because I'm having some connection problems. I'll be All right, back. go for it. Go for it. We'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be on the ball. Um, yeah, but this film, so it, one of the issues that I, that it talks about that I think is very, um, it has a very strong connection to sound money, very obvious connection to sound money, but it's, it's almost too good to be true is that the, the cost of housing, right? Um, real estate today is very obviously a speculative asset and, um, and as a speculative asset, it, it occurs a bunch of value that. That it that is not related to the primary purpose of the of the asset, you know, like a house should be just a place that shelters you and lets you, you know, it's a nest and and shelter, right? Lets you create a family, live comfortably, protects you from the elements. That's that's the value of of, of real estate, the fundamental value of real estate. But now there, it's got it has this speculative value, which is there because people are trying to escape a, a decaying monetary system. Yeah. And so I think with sound money, obviously, that could change. Go ahead, Tomer. Tell us about tell us what you see for for the for the distant or not the distant future, but you know, late twenty hundreds, twenty one hundreds. Yeah, listen, I think a lot of things get fixed, and I see that you've linked my latest article called "The Bitcoin Breakthrough," which is a bit of a long article, but I don't want to discourage people from reading it. I, I want people to go into it, and and I I point in I point out in that article. The Bitcoin is one of these breakthrough technologies. And when breakthrough technologies uh, take place, it's not very clear at the outset just how much of a breakthrough they're going to be. And in, in that article, I could have cited lots of different examples, but I didn't want to make it even longer. So I only focused on one example, which was the automobile, which was this revolutionary breakthrough technology that changed the face of our civilization. And it did more than just replace the horse. 
right? It's not, it's not like we just live in a society that's very similar to the one before the automobile, but with faster horses, uh, you know, which, which are automobiles. Every, everything changed. Uh, the nature of work changed. The distances you could travel changed. The uh, accessibility to uh, transportation changed. There are now today 10 times as many registered cars in America as there were horses at the peak of the horse population, which, by the way, fell 80 percent. Uh, within a couple of decades of the automobile being invented and where there are millions of miles of roads now paving um, paving the United States of America alone. Uh, and, and those roads are not optimized for walking or bicycling or horses. They're optimized for automobiles. And, and when the automobile first came out, a lot of the criticism of the automobile was there's no roads for it. Where, where are the roads going to come from? All the roads in the world are optimized for horses and bicycles and walking. So I, I think, you know, these changes take time. And that's kind of what I want to respond to, because that's what you're asking about. But, but it changed everything, right? Suburbs became possible. They didn't exist before. So it changed housing. It changed everything. And we've had these breakthroughs affect many areas. And what I try to point out is that I think Bitcoin affects a lot of different areas. I don't think it affects the automobile so much, but I think I point out Bitcoin's obviously a revolution in money. It's an, it's a new form of, of money and it changes how we think about money. But what really is, I think the biggest of the revolutions is it's a revolution in government. And we've we've come to the point, and I go through this in the article, and this is the section that I think is most important. So if someone's going to read a portion of the article, I really encourage them to take the time to go through the government piece. It's in 1971, the famous uh, period when uh, when the gold window was closed or money, dollars were no longer redeemable for gold, and neither were any foreign currencies. Like suddenly the gold standard ended overnight. It it did something that uh, that people don't really acknowledge so much. It, it corrupted money, but it also corrupted government. And and it wasn't so much that it corrupted both of these things. It fused them into being one thing. Like before, before that time, you didn't actually have politicians going around promising to spend trillions of dollars forgiving debt or, or doing any of these things that were these utterly expensive debt-based projects that will that would never get paid back because that wasn't in the option uh, in the option set and and as time progressed these things became more and more one and all you hear politicians promising doing now is promising to spend money that they don't have that they're going to print into thin air and, and buying people's votes with it and so what what really ends ended up happening is these two things became one and neither one served the purpose that they were meant to the dollar weaponized it became used as a tool to win elections as to who would corrupt it and who for whose favor and it stopped it stopped government from doing the kind of things that governments really ought to do and put them into this business of of buying votes and and maintaining power and and bitcoin is kind of this it, it's not kind of it is this technology that unilaterally divorces these two things it shouldn't be united it, sh it shouldn't be married it's an unholy matrimony and Bitcoin is is here to divorce those two things. So that's one of the big things that happens. I'll just quickly answer a little bit more of what you were talking about, like with respect to housing, which is a very short section of, of this article. Again, if people want to turn to it, which is finance. You know, people think of money, they think of as one thing and finance is the same thing, but they're actually very different. And financing 
and like and money should be two different things and financing should not be so big but it is and the reason houses are expensive is because the housing industry has been financialized and money can be created out of thin air to support someone paying a mortgage on a house because it's a durable asset and so it has these monetary properties and so we monetize it through the act of financing and we really have this people don't go around calling themselves financiers but that's what they are and so we have financiers financializing assets and and if you think about the house purchasing process you want there's someone who's selling a house then and there's you who wants to buy a house but there's someone else who wants to buy a house and so there's a free market all of a sudden there's a competing market for a house and you will never buy the house you'll never succeed in being the buyer of the house if the competing buyer has someone ready to lend them 200,000 or a million dollars to buy the house for more money than you have and luckily you've got the same person you've got the same bank offering to lend you 200,000 or a million or or whatever and so the whole price of houses is inflated not because of the, what they're worth but because of how much they can be financed and and so in the fiat monetary system we have all these people who are prepared to print money out of thin air to lend it to you so you can pay more for a house so that ultimately they can enjoy the, the interest um, from the payment, but there's no value added being created in this. And, and so I, I think all of these sorts of things under a sound money standard return back to their normal state. And it, it takes time because we have to move away from the fiat money standard. And, and that is the same process as how long it took to build roadways across America, you know, it, it, in the virtual sense. But as we move further and further away from money that's conjured up for, for these sorts of games by people who understand how financing uh, works and have access to the, to the privilege of being able to print money, all of these sorts of things that are really broken in our civilization start to heal. So education doesn't cost $200,000. It, it goes back to costing two to $20,000, which is what I... I paid when I went to school and it's just, I was talking with somebody last week and it's like, he's, he went to the same school as I went to 30 years later. He sat in the same chairs. Like they haven't even replaced the chairs in the lecture halls, but suddenly it costs 10 times as much. And it's not like the professors are getting paid 10 times as much. There's no new cost in the system, but there's a cost to him of 10 times as much. And, and this is money, you know, these student loans are loans made to children, right? They're made to 18 year old kids who aren't yet educated who are told by the people they trust that, yeah, this education is going to be worth $200,000. And they end up with this enor enormous debt for a product that doesn't cost $200,000 to deliver. costs very little. If you, if you think of what a professor gets paid divided by the number of students sitting in the classroom, it's costing tens of dollars to deliver a course, uh, not thousands of dollars to deliver a course. So I, I know this is a bit of a ramble, and I'll let you, uh, I'll let you ask a follow-up question or direct the conversation now after no that that was fantastic and uh by the way i just we just added the the videos the, the two films you made right. to the twitter nest um i can't believe how long it's taken me to figure out how to do that <laughs> i apologize for that i think i know how to do it now no but uh, yeah they're there you should definitely check them out and yeah on the education topic i mean i i really wanted to be a psychologist when i was uh my early yeah, since i was like 14 years old but when I, when I got to that age where I was like, okay, should I get into university and study psychology and stuff? Uh, I was in Canada and the cost of a, a psychology degree was like a hundred grand. 
and I didn't have a hundred thousand dollars and I wasn't particularly good at, at school in general, like getting grades, you know? So it was tough enough. Plus a hundred thousand dollars. It just, it's ridiculous. It just felt like, it just felt like a scam. And a lot of people were starting to talk about that in the internet. So that's kind of why I just pivoted into finance and Bitcoin and technology, because that was, that was an actual live opportunity where I could see returns and I could see progress quickly and I wouldn't end up being a hundred grand in debt uh, five years later. Right. And um, yeah. So education is, is there's so many things in society that are like that, that are so absurd in our era. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're hitting this stage where you can, you can get away with certain things that aren't terribly rational to a certain degree for a certain period of time, but we're getting closer to the point where the degree is so large and the duration that th these games have been played has been so long that things are starting to break down. Like you just, you can't keep up the pretense any longer. You can't play this game much longer. And, you know, psychology being one of these fields where it's a very interesting field and could in theory be very beneficial and helpful to people. But when you, when you commoditize and when you don't actually have solutions for people and you're, and the people who are practicing the profession are all deeply indebted because they had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree. Um, and they're, and, and they themselves are psychologically concerned about how they're going to pay, pay their bills. It makes it very hard for them to provide a really great service and, and, and solutions as well. Uh, the, the whole nature of the education system is one that claims to have a lot of answers and it's not, it, it's very hubristic. It doesn't, it doesn't admit to what it doesn't have answers to quite that readily. It tries to teach you by rote from textbooks to say, these are the answers, this is the approach. And, you know, psychology just being one of these really interesting fields where there's so many people who need psychological help and the profession is so unable to provide real, real help for people on many dimensions, right? It's not able to provide uh, the, the solutions to problems. It ends up prescribing medications that often that in most cases are lifelong highly addictive medications so th there's all these sorts of problems that we have now that we can all see quite clearly because they've they've been festering for so long uh and it's not that they can't be solved but they're not being solved under the current mode of of our civilization and so it's time it's healthy for these things to break down right we need some creative destruction on these things that aren't working but are being supported by the system and it's almost everywhere you look there's a big there's a large amount of psychological anxiety as a result of people seeing that we're kind of at the end of the road of a lot of these uh a lot of these paths and it's not it's not a great destination it's like we have to it's a dead end and we have to return back to something more normal and rediscover or discover for the first time knowledge that we failed to discover and we pretended that we had but which we don't Right? Like education in and yeah. of itself. I mentioned this in the generational wealth movie. It's like, it's so bizarre to think, you know, every human being is so unique. And yet we're going to teach every single human being the exact same lesson at the exact same age, at the exact same, you know, regardless of their interest, regardless of, uh, of their speed of development, regardless of everything, all, everyone is, is treated like a uh, unit in a factory. Right. Like a gr gr first grade is a factory and all the kids are, who were born between this date and that date go into it at the same time. And they get taught by, you know, by compulsion from uh, 
the ministry or the secretary of education, the, the curriculum that says on this day they'll be taught this, on that day they'll be taught that, all across the country without really any any proof that that's good. I mean, it's, it's obviously not right to do that. Right? It's obviously not optimal to do that, but it's done and we just do it blindly. And we've been doing it blindly for you know, like 50, 60 years right right now. And we can see, well, test scores are going down. People aren't as smart. People aren't as involved. Everything's getting, everything's getting worse in terms of our intelligence. Our IQs are going down. What we teach people at school isn't useful for them anymore. It doesn't prepare them for life. And yet we continue to do the same thing as, as though it, it were the case because we haven't broken it down and decided to start doing something new. And a lot of this is uh, a lot of this is woven into our system of money because it's woven into our system of government. And as I said, money and government are this one and the same thing now. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it is everyone's going to get a free education. It's not going to educate them. It's not going to make them smarter. It's going to force them into <laughs> these bins that treat them as though they were components in a factory. But it's free. And, and is it free? No, of course not. They pay the price of inflation. They pay for it through taxes. So there's this delusion that the government is giving us things for free when really they're forcing us to buy very inferior and not well-working versions of these things. Yeah, it seems like a lot of, a lot of institutions and systems in, in society globally today were, were built for, obviously, the industrial age. Uh, education is a very good example of that because it was literally built out by the Prussians in order to explicitly, this was their explicit intent for the design of modern education, uh, as it's pretty much everywhere in the world, uh, to create obedient soldiers and obedient workers as separate from, let's say, the intellectual class, so the working class soldiers and industry factory workers. And what did they need? They needed people that would do what they need, what they were told to do on a bell because they needed to have these sort of systemic uh, this sort of uh, very tight supply chains of work being done on, on, on manufacturing and so on in, this, in these factories, and also to be able to follow a command and control uh, system in, in, in military regime, right? So all of education is like, you know, you can only go to the bathroom at this time, you got to be in the classroom at this time, you got to sit still and quiet and suppress, you know, let's say your preferences and your, and your, and your needs. And there's nothing wrong with discipline. I think, I think discipline is very important, but all those skills were skills that were that were probably adaptive in the industrial age, uh, almost like post-Napoleonic uh, military era where, yeah, you might actually, you know, there's probably a decent chance you'll, you'll end up in a war or in a factory, right? So maybe they were adaptive then. They're not adaptive now. We're, we're in the age of the internet. We're in the, in the age of information. We need, we need people that can an analyze, consume, and critically uh, think about the world and then also lead and create and, and be able to, uh, let's say, lead their own lives uh, and, and plan for their own lives rather than just follow sure. and comply uh, yeah. based on, you know, well, uh, I, I, command I, I, and control. A little something to that, but I don't, I don't want to uh, spend too much time on this, on, on this topic because we, we have so little of it. Uh, it, is, it is also the case it's not like we looked at Prussia and North America and said, let's import their system and keep it the same forever. And, and we, and we have no choice in the matter. We voted for this. Right? Like people, it, it's, it's just been the slow creep. Once, the, once government became able to provide something allegedly for free, which was, you know, we'll tax you, but, but we'll socialize and we'll provide it for free and everyone will get universal equal access to it. I think that's when all of these things, whether it was education or healthcare or, or whatever, 
whatever you have that's become uh, reg regulated or even provided for by by the government that's become this public good, we've ended up in this situation where the quality of it, the purpose of it, it it's it's all been lost because it's not it's not subject to being tested by free markets. It's being monopolized and controlled by by democracy rather than rather than by variety and trial and error and success and failure. I mean, it, it's 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 success is predetermined even if it's unsuccessful. And so the measure of success is not the measure of quality. It's the measure of does the system sustain itself? But, you know, you can have an, an education system that fails to educate everybody and sustains itself, which is exactly what we have. Yeah, there's there's uh, the system. These systems, these institutions are like isolated from market forces to a significant degree. And it seems like the in the short term, the in, in the case of education specifically, in the short term, it seems like there's a, a populist sort of movement towards uh, school choice and taking control of the school boards and so on, which is actually a very big political uh, topic and, and agenda within American politics today. But I think in the long term, what we're seeing well, with and just, technology... I, I, the, and point, the point I would make is, there's a, like, like, let's give it a label like what we would with Bitcoin. It, there's a movement to decentralize the education system, whether it's to take it to your home and homeschool or to take control of your local school board or education and teach what feels locally relevant in a way that you ha as a parent uh, have involvement in that's, that's what the movement is. Right. And so like th this is, again, this pendulum is swinging and Bitcoin represents this extreme version of it. It's the pendulum swinging towards decentralization towards people being able to take control of their own lives and make their own mistakes, but also discover their own correct routes right and we have taken it for granted as a matter of kind of faith that the government is going to deliver a really good education system that the government is going to deliver a good healthcare system or good healthcare supervision regulation all this kind of stuff and and what everyone's becoming aware of is well that's not actually the case we need to take we need to take responsibility for ourselves because if we just trust some politician to do it some bureaucrat to do it it, it, ends, it ends up failing. And the more we trust them and the longer we take, we give them our trust, the worse, the worse things get. So this is, this, is, this is why I make these broad generalizations across whether it's real estate or education or food, you know, healthcare, any of these things, they're all victims of the same problem, which is we, we, expect, we thought we could just delegate all the thinking and all the discussion and all the direction to the bureaucratic monopoly government system. And it turns out we can't. And it's not about now like just being angry and blaming politicians and trying to find the politician who will fix it. It's about actually taking back the responsibility and, and understanding that there are risks in the world and that there are failures and that you can't make those things go away. And that if you try to make those things go away, you end up with just one colossal failure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really interesting how that dynamic works out. You know, the, the process of decentralizing power that has been corrupted, that's visibly, or institutions that are visibly corrupt, is the process of taking responsibility for what those institutions uh, are, at least are trying on, pa on paper to resolve, right? So if the education system is failing the world, then the solution is to take back control of the education of our children. And thanks to the internet, I think we have actually a wide range of 
tools uh, that are basically free and very, very effective at teaching. And Khan Academy is probably one of the one of the uh, most popular and well-known brands for that. But it's you know basically all the math, uh, STEM, all the STEM knowledge you could want in a gamified, child-friendly way, step by step, broken down, you know, granularly. I mean, it's it's incredible what a resource can academy is. And there's probably a hundred websites and, and, and services and tools for education online, thanks to the internet that, that help you uh, educate yourself. A lot of universities are starting to publish their work online as well. So you don't even have to get a university to get the knowledge. They just have this little monopoly of their certification. But honestly, I think that's also failing. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think that's, yeah. there's, so like that's it. I mean, there's, there's a lot we're of at this moment potential in, there. We're at this moment in history where the unraveling of, of of the old way is starting to happen and the, the breakthrough of all these different things we can do but we hadn't really been able to do them fully in part because of this terrible uh, union of of money and and the state and 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 the separation of these things as however long it takes will lead to the separation of all these other things and, that, and that's why it's this grand breakthrough it's it's a breakthrough like how can you say bitcoin is a breakthrough in housing and education and healthcare and nutrition because all of these things are going to unravel because all of these things are so tightly wound up in this union between money and and government regulation force whatever you whatever you want to call that thing that is that is the state and so getting it to release its grip on on those things will allow those things to evolve in in the way that individuals freely choose to to discover their their evolution and so there'll there'll be a lot of learning there'll be a lot of mistakes along the way there will be lots of improvements along the way and the improvements will win in the long run. And so that's a transition to the future that I try to paint in Bitcoin as generational wealth as an example. Yeah. And something else that I noticed in the 15 minute film, uh, yeah, Bitcoin is generational wealth was that you had a very strong focus on nutrition and health and agriculture. And I feel like, you know, that example and, and that vision of the future is, let's say maybe more distant for me and, and the connection between that and, and, and sound money or what, what that might, how sound money might help us get to a healthier future. Um, that, that question I'd like you to, if you, if you, if you will just elaborate on and tell us about that, because it sounds like you really know about the topic seemed, seemed to me like that was a kind of passion of yours. And it's, it's, yeah. I feel like it's maybe almost a little bit distant from a well, lot of the Bitcoin I'll, discussions. I mean, I'll, tr- I'll try to be quick about it. And I'll, I'll just try to paint, what's wrong now and if it went away why why things might be right and and what's wrong now is you have a bunch of really fat unhealthy politicians telling you what science is whether that's nutrition or healthcare or energy policy but let's focus on, on health you know there's but yeah buddy you're you're uh you're also a um kind of a health guy i mean you you you've done a lot of you know a lot about working out too, like especially uh, strength training and so on. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about this side of things from your perspective. Like, um, where do you see the future? Let's say if the world was sane, where do you see the future of health? Right? Like, is everybody going to be a, a, a carnivore that lifts uh, heavy weights and uh, I don't know, does jogging or something? Like, what what does that look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's about balance. Um, I've kind of been surprised to find out over the years that um, you can have quite a variety of diets that actually work, um, but there's sort of these common themes to a lot of the diets that, that do work. 
So for example, I think right around 2008, I started experimenting with um, like crazy diets. Like I, I did hundred uh, percent raw paleo for like three years. And most of that during, I was under ketosis. So I was basically eating a shitload of raw meat, um, like very high fat raw meat and just like maybe a couple pieces of fruit every day. Um, and that's like, that was all my carbs. And um, I think that's a really good sort of cycle to go through. Uh, it's good to sort of cycle yourself into ketosis every now and then. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a good steady state. Maybe for some people and some body chemistries it is, um, but uh, humans, you know, we were omnivores. We, we basically ate what we could find. And sometimes, you know, it was feast and sometimes it was famine. So um, the other thing that, uh, as you might've heard me say just now that I ate a bunch of raw meat and I basically still do, I'll hit the outside like just for a few seconds to kill any like bacteria that might be on the outside. Um, but I still pretty much eat raw meat. And I think that a lot of people that do the carnivore diet, um, there's sort of two major things they need to do. And that's one, they need to eat their meat as, as undercooked as they can, as much as you can stomach. Um, and then you need to fast because um, you get all these proteins that end up building up. They're like sort of rogue proteins that cause problems inside of your cells. And um, you need to clear those out. It's called autophagy. So a, a lot of the carnivores that I see aren't fasting enough. Um, so that would be like one recommendation. Uh, in general, like if I could like make my own perfect healthy world, people would basically eat meat, fruits, vegetables, um, and, uh, not hardly any seeds. Most things that are seeds are like not that great for you. There's a few exceptions you can make like on a case by case basis. I think rice is mostly okay. Coconuts are mostly okay. Even potatoes can mostly be okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of the, the whole society based on I mean, you know, people try to get really technical. No, I've got to be carnivore and it's got to be, you know, to this degree and, and et cetera. Like most people can just make easy changes in their life, like cut the junk out, right? Stop drinking as much, um, stop smoking as much, uh, eat less junk food, try to find uh, natural sources. I would very much like to see the paradigm of like poisoning our plants and poisoning our, our food supply. I, I would like to see that reduced significantly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to change. There's a lot to be done in that regard. Yeah, the funny thing about seeds is that they, by design, want to survive the digestive process, you know, like, because the purpose of a seed is to end up in the ground with hopefully poop around it so that it can, so that it can be fertilized and does grow into a new tree, right? And so seeds don't actually want to be digested and their whole genetic makeup is designed to make them not digestible. And so the idea that we'll, we'll make all this stuff out of seeds that's going to be cool and, and kosher you know, you have to think about it. For, I think I think about it from that perspective. But yeah, I mean, it seems like the modern institutions just sort of um, they're a headwind against good health. Right. Like we saw during the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, really bad health advice. Right. Like just stay inside. Don't go out. You know, here, put your face mask on all day and never very rarely did you hear somebody say, like, you know, take your vitamins, work out, get some sunlight, you know. All of these things are good, not just to to solve depression, which a lot of people sort of fell into, but also just to get basic health. Uh, you have to go outside and walk and get some sun. And yeah, probably take some vitamins because the nutrition is, is the, the food is not as, nutrition, as, as, as nutritious as it used to be, as, as Tomer was telling us. Well, who unfortunately won't be able to make it back. Uh, his phone literally overcharged, but we'll have to, so we'll have to, uh, we'll have to reschedule for him. But I think that we, we should still continue this conversation um a little bit deeper because we're, we need to talk we, you know there's a lot of things about the future in his films that um 
that were really, really interesting. And I, I think health is one of them, you know, like in a, in a, in, in a world where uh, big corporations and government aren't in this sort of incestuous, corrupting relationship, but have been sort of uh, decoupled by sound money, which is the vision of Bitcoin, right? The separation of money and state. Um, you, you, in theory, get a, a healthier society and a healthier society would let us have healthier people and better health advice from, uh, let's say, the leaders of society. Um, so, you know, is there anything else you, you want to say on, on that? Maybe somebody else wants to join and, and, and mention, you know, comment on that. But, you know, Body, what, what do you, what do you, uh, is there, it, it, does that make any sense? Does that relationship between fiat money and health, is that a relationship that you recognize or, or how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, it was, I believe, the Rockefellers and when they, like when oil started taking over and obviously with like JP Morgan and the whole banking industry, that all went hand in hand with the allopathic medicine uh, paradigm because it used to be very naturopathic. Like there was, in fact, there's been a lot of information just lost for naturopathic remedies uh, and treatments. And so, yeah, I mean, the fiat paradigm definitely gave a certain group of people outsized control to, um, I think personally what they needed were little test subjects and experiments. They had all these new cool chemicals they were creating in laboratories. And um, some of them are actually slightly useful. Some of them can do things like kill pests and whatnot. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, modern medicine does kind of work in, in certain ways. Um, so, I mean, we, we can't like deny that some of these chemicals and medicines um, have caused us to become more healthy, um, but sort of at the cost of like, of of having a general healthy population by getting the basics right like you said exercise sunlight diet uh stuff like that um so yeah i think i think changing the fiat paradigm would in, would empower a lot of people mostly people like us liberty freedom minded people um to sort of take back these economies of scale or at least um to maybe start developing micro economies that become feasible where we can have like smaller decentralized farms uh, and we can start, I mean, one thing you see into the future is a lot of these robotics have just gotten really, really good. And obviously the AI stuff is gonna integrate more and more into that. A lot of farms already, their equipment is, is completely automated. So, um, I mean, I, I do think there's a potential that if we take back some of the money, if we, uh, if we get the money to be more honest and we can find other ways of operating that uh, there's a good chance we can for, uh, more and more take back our health. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, the thing about money too, is like, if you have good money, you're able to, you have more cap capital to invest in your life. And so I think that, yeah, suddenly things like having a, you know, little rural farm with nice house, you get the solar panels, you get water uh, collection systems, water filters, and then suddenly you can have a little garden, maybe even a chicken coop and like, a chicken coop, I think, like, I've seen some chicken coops lately, like, really high-tech stuff, right? Like, uh, the, the chickens sit on a little nest, there's a little pipe, they don't even know their eggs are missing, uh, the eggs end up in a little basket, you pick them up, there's automatic feeding system, automatic lighting system, there's, like, even classical music or whatever music you want to you wanna put on it. Like, there's people <laughs> even live-streaming this. I think Tim Pool has one of these, one of these farms where you can watch the chickens and, like, you can do super chats and, like, you know, put on special music and the chickens will start walking around confused, which is kind of funny, maybe a little, a little mean <laughs> at times, but definitely funny. And so, I mean, you know, we, we can like, I, I want to see a future where we use these technologies that we have 
actually for the for the bettering of humanity. And there's a lot of examples in that sort of dream of like let's say the 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 sovereign homestead or the or the even the the citadel as the you know, more dystopian meme of the Bitcoin world, uh, where it's sustainable localized economies thanks to this technology again solar power um and uh and a lot of this 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 automation of of tasks that back in the day you know to be fair were very labor intensive right but again we have much better technology technology that is hard to comprehend how powerful it is so it seems to me we can have our cake and eat it too if we can only uh you know keep sanity or or regain sanity in society at scale or with enough scale anyway um let's let's move into free energy which is gosh such an interesting topic um you know the, 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 go ahead i'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt there's like one more thing that maybe might be interesting to talk about uh, especially if anyone else has any ideas and that's um like these longevity um compounds that are being discovered uh things like um nad um, or you might have heard of NMNs, like nicotine mono something nucleotide. I don't know. Anyways, it seems like there's these life extension um, compounds that are being found in foods. They like they'll find these compounds, they'll refine them, they'll give them to like yeast or mice or different kinds of mammals, and they'll extend their lifespan to like 10, 20, 30, 50 percent. Um, and it does seem like that's that's kind of that that could be around the corner here over the next um, like 10 years, 20 years, where um, it seems like they're almost, in some cases, even reversing aging. One one idea that I've had for a long time is that I would like to stay as young and healthy as possible for as long as possible because I do think it's very it's very um, plausible that a lot of this stuff could get figured out soon and um, we could be young for a very long period of time. Like not just like not just like oh I live to be a hundred in a wheelchair, but like I'm actually young. Like I'm sixty and I look like I'm forty. You know something like that. Yeah, longevity research is definitely uh, making headlines uh, and, and very interesting stuff's coming out of that. And also, it's not just, you're right, it's not just longevity as in like live for a long time, but, you know, as a vegetable, but actually like quality of life longevity, right? So for how long can we maintain, you know, a an active and energetic lifestyle and, and can we push that out? And there's definitely a lot of people working on this stuff, you know, and, and there's kind of philosophical questions around that that are interesting. But uh, definitely we could see, I think we are seeing big improvements on that area and hopefully that can become, let's say, more popularized. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, who doesn't want to live for a long time? I think that death is an interesting topic that I, I don't know if I want to get too philosophical on this because I want to, I want us to paint uh, a picture of the future that could be, you know, but yeah, so let's. I'm gonna skip the death topic for another show, but uh, let's talk a little bit about energy. Uh, there's this this study that came out recently, which we'll see if it gets validated and replicated. But basically, some scientists figure out that you could transmit um, you could transmit energy a long distance with with uh, materials that are you know kind of accessible, right? So like you can create these pipes. Let me. So it's superconducting at room temperature or like uh, at a temperature that's not super cold, right? So basically, there's an issue with transmitting energy, right? The longer you go, you, you try to transmit energy, the more loss of energy you have. So let's say you, you have this volcano um, Bitcoin mine in El Salvador, but there's no, like the, the nearest town is, you know, what, 50 kilometers away or something like that. 
And so to transmit energy produced in that Bitcoin mine to that town actually has a great, a, a large rate of loss. And, um, and, and, and that's a problem because you, it means you, you, you're limited to your sources of energy. But this technology that they're that they're really trying to discover is um, yeah, it's called superconductors. No, sorry, let me just trying to get you the link on this. Um, I'll put it on the nest. Yeah, ambient temperature pressure superconductor. I'll put this tweet on the nest. Uh, basically, this paper is talking about how you could create materials without very advanced technology. That would let you transmit electricity with almost no loss at uh, at ambient temperature. So you don't need to be cooling. You don't need to have you know very strong cooling or anything to transmit it. And it, this would be if this is true. This is probably one of the biggest discoveries in physics in the in in our century. Which means that we need to wait for science to actually scientists to actually replicate this and and see if it's true. But if it is true. It would mean that the cost of transporting and storing energy basically trend towards zero fairly quickly. And that would be a boon in, in, in different sources of energy and the cost of, of energy in general. And the, and the fundamental resource of society is energy. Energy is the fundamental resource. And so if the cost of the fundamental resource goes down, then the cost of everything will also go down. And um, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a fantastic, that's a fantastic discovery. There's a lot to say there, but um, yeah, Body, did you did you have have you had a, a look at this technology or or in, any any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so it, it it seems like uh, it's it's unlikely that this discovery was actually made. Um, the guy that made it uh, had some controversy with the same topic about um, superconductors at uh, at higher temperatures, and basically they had to. Uh, I think he published it like two years ago in this particular journal and then no one could replicate it so they had to retract the, the study um, and that retraction came out i think like right around the same time that his new discovery came out so um yeah i mean it's kind of sad it's kind of disappointing in, in some ways because like room temperature superconductivity is an amazing like it's like the holy grail in, in a lot of ways of what um a lot of science is trying to aim to do it just unlocks so much potential like you said you basically have zero cost. It's maybe not zero cost energy storage, but you have zero loss energy storage. You can do cool stuff like, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the magnets that are like floating over a superconductor. So we'll kind of, we'll like, we finally get our flying cars. We'll finally get like our bullet trains that are going, you know, like almost at the speed of sound. Um, we get, like you said, loss, lossless energy transmission. Even even our um, our computing devices, like our CPUs and everything, holy crap. The, the kinds of models that could be trained with AI would just be thousands of times more powerful than they are now. Um, and it's likely that like the, the semiconductor processes that they'll, that they'll make um, to leverage this, like we'll, we'll like our phones will be supercomputers. I mean, they already kind of are, but, um, but I don't, I think it's unlikely that this discovery was made, but we should know within like a week or two, because supposedly their process was, should be really easy to replicate. It was yeah. basically a ceramic process. And, and, ju and just real quick, uh, the, the tweet that I pinned, uh, the guy is saying that this this study was done by a different team than the one that you mentioned. There was an, a scandal uh, in 2020 by a group at Rochester called Days at Al, like in Latin, but uh, who used a totally different material, silver nanoparticles that no one expected to work. 
Um, and but these are uh, lead-based ceramics and are much more similar to superconductors, and they're from a reputable group out of Korea. So this is a different group that came out with this study, um, as far as I'm aware. But yeah, obviously we have to wait for it to be replicated, and uh, it's probably not going to be as good as it sounds. But even if it's like half true. Um, it could lead to a, a huge wave of, of technological innovation and not just on, on, on the transportation of energy, but you're right, in the speed of computers. So we could have a, a whole new generation of, of computer chips that are far more efficient and uh, you like, probably don't even overheat that much because there's less resistance, presumably. Uh, obviously, we're talking about like, you know, technological developments that will take years, but it'll be like, you know, like, like the race is on. Um, and then suddenly we could we could also have like, you know, reasonably uh, compact and efficient nuclear reactors far enough away from cities that people don't freak out, but that don't lose a ton of the energy in transmission. So if you if we can go back to a nuclear energy world where the reactors are a you know made with modern technology, but also a lot uh, so a lot safer, but also further far enough away from from cities that and and let's say uh, towns and such that that they're not really a threat and we don't lose the energy again like the future could be incredibly bright we just have to kind of grasp it and defend it because the powers that be are going to try to inflate away the value that people create through this fiat currency and basically steal the future that we could create and uh that's that's the big that's the big paradigm uh issue here it'll be insane like the world if that's true so maybe um i guess maybe there's like sort of conflicting information out there uh, I, I guess i'll have to double check which team it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, if this is validated, if it's true, our entire world is is about to change. Like the the world we'll see 10 years from now based on this will just be completely different. Um, you know, like they say things like you could put a small amount of solar panels in a very concentrated area and that would be enough to power the whole world. You could put a bunch of solar panels in the Sahara Desert and then pipe that energy to Europe, China, and the rest of Africa. Um, you know, I wonder... A lot of the things that we've seen, like with the fiat money system, has been intentionally designed to sort of clamp down humanity and prevent humanity from like actually doing the things that would make it free, open, uh, and, and technologically like just advanced, more advanced than we are now. And so I wonder, like, if this is true, how much harder are the sort of the powers that be? Are they going to fight to prevent this kind of infrastructure from getting rolled out? Um, that might be a bit of an uphill battle, but. Uh, Supposedly, this stuff's pretty easy to make. Like that's at least, and you know, I I haven't read that much on it, but one thing I did read is that people were saying that this should be able to be replicated fairly quickly. So if that's the case, um, you know, you might not be able to stop your garage scientists from uh, from creating a bunch of really cool stuff. Yeah, I know multiple. Like I I know at least one team we we know in common that that has the tools and the space and the time to actually try and replicate this. So one of the things that it says. Alex Kaplan says to, uh, on he's on the nest now, I believe it should be. Yeah, there you go. Um, he says, according to the authors, the LK99 material can be prepared in about 34 hours with extremely basic lab equipment, a mortar, a pestle, and a basic vacuum and a furnace. And uh, these results could replicate within days to weeks. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna know if this is real uh, in a few weeks, and uh, I, I I hope it is. I mean, this would be huge because a the fact that it's easily repli replicable would mean that actually this wouldn't become some monopolized technology that would be stolen, um, as many technologies probably do. They get shelved because they're not in the interest of 
of of the Giants, right? And so, um, you know, like I, I, I hate to be that conspiratorial, but the economics for such things to happen do seem to exist. And so, you know, if these great interests can manage to clamp down on on, on better technologies, they probably will try. You know, and depending on the technology, they might actually get away with it. But you know, with this is now so public that, you know, I think we'll see we'll see replication. Um, You'll see hash power explosion. Oh so yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. To make like superconductor uh, ASIC miners that are like thousands of times more powerful. Maybe not thousands, but significantly more powerful. Yeah, that that's that's a little crazy, right? Like that would definitely we would definitely see that happen. And that's always been my my argument against the free energy people. You know, like they they say that there's people that will be like, oh, free energy, bro. They can harness it from like. Uh, electric, uh, like static electricity and water and, and, and whatever. It's like, if that was true, hash power, somebody would have created a, a, a Bitcoin mine, you know, based on free hash, like of free energy. And, uh, you know, hashing power with literally a hockey stick to the moon constantly, right? But, uh, it, I mean, hash power is definitely going up quite a bit. So maybe, maybe it's already happening. Google's hash rate real quick. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we would definitely see it reflected in hash and, and hopefully we'd manage to, uh, navigate that, that aspect of Bitcoin, uh, proof of work. Um, there's also like quantum computers, right? This whole thing about quantum computers, which will become FUD, right? Like as soon as, if this happens, the next wave of FUD is like, oh, now we can build efficient quantum computers. And, um, I mean, the answer there hopefully is that we, we can also build quantum cryptography as a result. Uh, I think we can already do that, but um, you know that's a good point. Wow. Like, if this is true, um, I mean, like you said, I'm a little bit of a critic. Bitcoiners are going to have to start accepting the fact that the protocol will have to fork to keep up with quantum computers. Um, I mean, it'll still be some time. There's still the problem of error correction, and I think that's the primary issue that they're trying to resolve with quantum computing right now um, to like get the qubits up. Um, like there's nothing you can do to stop a galactic ray from occasionally striking a qubit um, and flipping, like flipping the result. And that's really damaging to um, like to your whole model when you're trying to compute something. Um, so like error correction is a big deal. Uh, but eventually, like, yeah, with room temperature um, semiconductors, a lot of that will get figured out and a lot of options will be present. And quantum computing will mean that like most most cryptocurrencies, but especially Bitcoin, will absolutely have to hard fork to um, to go to a quantum resistant uh, algorithm. And at some points, you like you have to look enough into the future, and you have to prepare for that in advance, right? So you got to say, okay, well, it's not here yet, but it could be. Um, what what are like what are the things we could do? And as it starts to get closer, you really really do have to um, to have something ready to go, and you have to fork ahead of time. So um, that'll be like. That could end up being a big debate, but maybe it's good. Maybe some other cool stuff gets in there that's, you know, that's preferable, but but hard to get in. Yeah, Satoshi Nakamoto mentioned this. He said that if um, he said that if if quantum computers actually became a problem, you would basically fork the blockchain, right? Like you make a, a, a do you? I believe it does have to be a hard fork. I don't know if there's better thinking in on this topic today that. Maybe there's some sort of software way to do it, right? Like, like the way that SegWit created new address types. Maybe you, maybe you create a new quantum resistant uh, address types, right? The key thing here is, can we build cryptography that is quantum resistant? And I believe we already have quantum resistant cryptography. We just have to, we just have to integrate it into everyday use. But of course, addresses that hold bitcoins that 
were not on quantum resistant uh, cryptography would suddenly start to become uh, vulnerable to quantum brute forcing with these new types of computers. So there will have to be a whole transition into quantum uh, Bitcoin. And, and, and the easiest solution would be to basically fork the, like do a, basically you would do like a, essentially like a, 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 you would clone the blockchain and then do an airdrop into quantum Bitcoin. And then you will have to see if the, if the proof of work market respects it and if it gains, you know, uh, mass adoption. That's probably how we would end up. We would end up with like two Bitcoins and then one of them, if the quantum threat is real, then, then one of them would end up failing and then people would migrate to the new one. So let's say you have some, you have some cold storage Bitcoin, you would end up with Bitcoin on both chains and then one of them eventually would get hacked, but the value of that would have already crashed because, because that's the quantum, like the, that's the quantum vulnerable Bitcoin, right? And uh, it would be, it would be a, you know, a tricky event. Uh, definitely, you know, a, a sort of hands on the wheel uh, event, but uh, definitely survivable. Uh, and there's been some writing on that. Satoshi talked about it, and I think there's other other people that have talked about it as well. Definitely would be very exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. The um, so yeah, I think it's the digital signatures are there are the what's in question. So the hashing algorithm is actually just fine. Um, but I believe it's Shor's algorithm is it puts basically all elliptic curve encryption or elliptic curve cryptography and uh, in jeopardy. And so um, yeah, I think. Yeah, you might have, like you said, you might have to airdrop because basically you have to migrate all the funds to new addresses. Uh, so it's like, because otherwise, if you don't migrate the funds to new addresses and a new signature type, then like you said, the old chain can basically just get hacked and anyone with a quantum computer can start stealing funds, can start generating signatures. So it kind of requires everyone to migrate and the people that don't migrate um, like won't have their funds available to them. So I don't know, like in a technical sense, like as you're describing that, I'm trying to imagine, okay, so you'll still have like the same public key and the same private key, but now the digital signature is a different type of signature that's quantum resistant, like, but do you still have to migrate your funds? So I wonder like if people that don't migrate their funds uh, won't lose them, right? A lot of the old addresses, like we might find out who's still around and who's, you know, which Bitcoin are actually lost because you know, if you mine the 50 Bitcoin block, like you're going to migrate your funds, you know, you're going to dust off that hard drive or, or whatever to get your funds and move them. So we might actually figure out how much Bitcoin was actually lost by seeing the people that don't migrate. Yeah, the first coins that would be attacked would be Satoshi's 100% because we know that he has like, he he mined like a, a million Bitcoins and there were they've not, none of them have moved. The only ones that, that we know moved were the ones that he sent to Hal Finney. Um, as far as I'm aware, there might be like another one that he moved, but, uh, yeah, so that was like, so that's like a million coins that are sitting on legacy addresses that will probably never move. I'm, I'm, I'm betting he either destroyed the keys or sent them to a burn address because I don't think any human being on earth has the kind of willpower that it would require, that you would require to hodl a million Bitcoin for 13 years. Like that's, that's, that's a level of 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 self-restraint that I am skeptical exists. So he he either was wise enough to destroy the private keys or he's dead, or he is like the reincarnation of Jesus and uh, can hold on to to can can keep the devil at bay, let's say, and or at least the temptation to to dump uh for that long. Uh but maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just short-sighted on that end. But yeah. 
bit, Satoshi's coins would definitely be attacked. And so if Satoshi's alive, he would either like he would either somehow help encourage maybe like like the people would either encourage a fork that does an airdrop to quantum resistant addresses so that not so that everybody doesn't have to move their coins or you would have to deploy a a um a kind of new segwit a new address type that is quantum resistant and then people would have to migrate and probably like the the, the quantum resistant address type would be the first path that gets developed like that's the soft fork version and then you would have a hard fork version which would lead to a kind of bcash event um and uh man that would be fun <laughs> that would be exciting i'll tell you guys if if that happens the best strategy is to hold both coins and uh you wait for it to shake out because if you sell one of them and you're wrong you're gonna be salty for the next 10 years just as we see with half of the bcashers so um just some hard-earned advice there i actually i actually managed anyway that's good times we can talk about bcash stories some other time but i i i did pretty well in that era um <laughs> <laughs> i uh i have kind of this theory that if we wanted to hate on bcashers just a little bit they um okay. quote unquote airdropped all of the people that would just sell their price into obscurity right like because it seems like the whales that matter stayed you know stayed with bitcoin and so like they were doomed from the start and it's easy to say this in hindsight but they were doomed from the start because they airdropped all of the people that would sell their coin into obscurity and they've just continually sold 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 uh so i think that was like a big factor in, in why they lost yeah it's it's interesting because part of the part of their uh vision was to have a a bitcoin that was spend that they could spend as a currency cheaply because the fees on bitcoin were like 50 bucks in in that in that era like they peaked around 50 bucks. And so the, the concern was like, well, you can't scale Bitcoin uh, with a one block, with a one megabyte blocks, even four megabytes with the with SegWit is still not enough. And so we need bigger blocks, right? And so, but these were people that were like, actually, a lot of them were like libertarian end caps that wanted to just spend it. What, what happens when you spend Bitcoin in a non-circular economy? Like if you don't have a circular economy of Bitcoin, which means that you, when you pay your merchant, merchant pays their suppliers and their suppliers pay their employees and their employees go buy groceries and all of that happens in Bitcoin. If you don't have a, 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 a large enough circular economy, then the end result is that Bitcoin ends up being sold against the market, which means the price actually ends up going down, right? And so you have to counter the, the spending cycle with a buying demand, but because it's a new coin, the speculative sort of long-term longevity of that coin, that new chain is kind of suspect. And so the, the demand for it, the speculative demand for it shrinks while the spending goes up. And so the price goes to hell, right? That's my economic analysis of the situation. But um, yeah, that's uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful event. Just to just so much data and so much, so many insights out of that whole fork that in some ways, I'm almost glad that it happened, you know, because it, it gave us so much data about, about how this stuff works. If, um, if like, hypothetically, these room temperatures, uh, superconductors give the opportunity for, say, like, petabyte uh, internet, right? Like, right now, you can get um, two to five gigabits per second for, like, $100 uh, from, like, Google Fiber. But, like, we might literally have petabyte internet uh, coming up. And, and like if we get these room temperature semiconductors, we might have storage drives that are like petabyte, 10 petabyte, like crazy, crazy amounts of storage. 
Does that have any effects on what the block size could be in a hypothetical quantum hard fork? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm, I'm sure it'll be a topic because there's still a lot of people that think that the block should be bigger. Um, I, even Adam Back has said that eventually we probably, at the time he said it, I don't know what his opinion is today, but at, at the time he said eventually we would have to hard fork to 10 megabytes. But um, but yeah, like I think, you know, again, like we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. I think in a, in a quantum hard fork event, that'll definitely come up. So that that'll that'll be really interesting. Um, the the you other want to get the everything other, you can get in at that point, right? Like you want to get all the upgrades you, you think you'll need. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Any privacy hard fork, any privacy upgrades that that make sense that don't change the the supply curve or the or the you know probably like the supply curve has to stay sacred, right? But um, but yeah, I think any any privacy upgrades or or privacy technology we could add should probably get in there too. Man, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Um, quantum, a quantum, the quantum hard fork. I mean, watch, people are listening to this and they're gonna launch a shitcoin uh, in five minutes and then they're gonna blame us for this. Uh, I do not approve. I need, I need proof of quantum computer first. <laughs> Hold both <laughs> coins. Yeah, man, the ordinal is already on the way. It's in the pipe. There's definitely JPEGs being minted as we speak. Um, so, okay. So oh, one, sorry, I didn't one, mean to drop such a cool phrase as quantum hard fork that people were going to mint my bad. <laughs> yeah, no, JPEG's incoming, but, um, one other topic here that's really interesting with this technology is, um, batteries. So battery technology would be radically improved, right? Like batteries are really hard to make, really expensive to make right now. They require like what is it, plutonium or something? Like they require, no, it's not plutonium. They, they like lithium, lithium, right? They, yeah, that's plutonium is a very different thing, but they need lithium and lithium is a rare earth mineral that isn't actually that easy to find. Apparently Mexico has a lot of it, which means we're probably gonna invade Mexico in the next 10 years if uh, Elon Musk has his way. But um, yeah, so so that there's lithium technology is needed, obviously need lithium minerals for batteries. But if this technology actually is real. You can bet your ass Tesla is going to start playing with it for batteries because it would let us build very efficient batteries, right? And that's something else that uh, Alex Kaplan talks about here. Um, yeah, so what you yeah. have are induction. You can do inductor batteries. Um, so you might have heard of like supercapacitors. It's where you put two metal plates or two metallic something or other really close together. Uh, so that the charge can't actually cross, but uh, they're like, it's really attracted. Uh, like you're basically forcing as many electrons as you can. An induction battery is based on the fact that anytime you have an electric current, you have a magnetic field. So you just basically put, um, you put wire into a big loop and it creates this massive magnetic field. But since it's a superconductor, there's no losses. Like you get zero losses and it just keeps, basically the electrical current just keeps spinning forever and it'll just stay there for mm -hmm. years at a time. Uh, so you can create these like really massive, um, basically battery. It's kind of like, or sorry, uh, magnetic batteries. Um, and uh, there, there, there are limits. Like you can't just, you know, take a little microfilament and then pump gigawatts of power through it or something like that. There are limits, but you could make like basically batteries that have zero losses um, where you can draw basically all of the energy uh, and you can cram a shitload of energy in there. Like, yeah, our batteries will become really, really good. 
Yeah, uh, Alex Kaplan says, superconductors might be the best batteries out there. Simply inject a current and keep it in the coil until you need it. Uh, previously too costly to maintain, now totally feasible, assuming this technology is real, right? So um, yeah, very efficient batteries with high capacity. You know, Your phone would not uh, have to be charged twice a day. Imagine that. I, I literally carry a battery with me whenever I go out because by the time I get anywhere, I've listened to a podcast and been tweeting for an hour and my phone has lost half its uh, battery. So um, yeah, this is, this is a big deal. You know, like people worry about range in a Tesla. If you, if you, if we have this level of batteries, you could do a spin around the world probably with a car. And I mean, anyway, I, obviously we're extrapolating, I'm extrapolating big time here, but uh, there would definitely be huge improvement in batteries, right? Which, which would also mean you could actually deplug from the grid, right? Because you can have, you know, enough solar panels to to have more than your, to, to have extra capacity or extra input into your batteries at home. And then just have batteries that get charged over time. And, uh, and, and you can have the, you know, you don't, wouldn't have to worry about, oh, well, there's no input of electricity from the solar panels at night, right? Right now, if you want to have a self-sustaining solar panel system in, a, in, a, in, a, in an off-grid site, you need, ba you need batteries. And right now, like my buddies are doing it in Mexico and they, they have like, there's like 20 car batteries uh, connected to each other to, to, to sustain their, their, their electricity needs, electric needs. Um, you know, th this would be a lot cheaper, right? Like right now that's like a, what, $10,000, $15,000 setup, maybe $10,000 setup. So this could get a lot cheaper. If it gets a lot cheaper, there's a point where you almost don't need the electric grid, right? And so you don't have to be paying these monthly bills. You could just finance electricity from different perspectives. I mean, I don't know. That sounds- yeah, Batteries sounds are actually your largest, um, that's your largest cost in any system. And they, they get old, they wear out, they die. So like, um, yeah, the ability to create a battery that, uh, that's extremely useful, um, not, only, not only does it become cheaper, uh, I mean, assuming these materials are relatively easy to make, which it sounds like they are, uh, not only do batteries become very, very low cost, so it eliminates the hardest part about having an off-grid system. Um, it reduces all of the uh, like all of the chemical waste that's required to extract all these rare earth metals because it's not just lithium. There's like cobalt and a bunch of other stuff as well, um, you know, and a lot of mines that are very dirty. So uh, you kind of eliminate that as well, which is good. You know, kind of helps you clean up the food supply, the water supply as well. Um, and then the other problem you have with batteries right now is you can only charge them so fast and you can only uncharge them so fast. So like if you have a windmill and you have like two hours a day where the wind just blows crazy, but then it's, you know, calm for the rest of the day, it's hard to store all of that energy at once. If you want to do it, you've got to have like really um, high capacity battery system, which again runs into cost, or you have to do like super capacitor or something like that, which, you know, we already have super capacitors, but again, they take up a lot of space. There's a lot of cost involved. Um, so yeah, we'll have these batteries that we'll have, you can charge them and, and uncharge them in moments, like in seconds, as opposed to, you know, hours, which incidentally will enable technologies like railguns. Like you'll be able to create, like if, if we could do this, if we have a true room temperature superconductors, you'll be able to create like badass railguns, like the prolifer proliferation of 3D printed ghost guns will turn into 3D printed ghost railguns. And then we'll be able to shoot the robots that are going to come to exterminate us, you know, like the whole Tesla robot branch of Skynet. Uh, we'll be able to defend ourselves. So, you know, there's there's hope there, too. We'll have drone armies. Drone armies will be fighting 
So like we're talking about, like, so AI says so sovereignly computed AI drones, right? So we, we, we have our own rigs that, that compute the brains of an AI that drives the drones, which shoot rail guns is what, is what you're telling me. Basically, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost like that. Uh, remember that meme where it's like, I just want um, gay lesbian couples to defend their heroin fields with, uh, uh, with guns, with mach automatic machine guns they bought on the dark web. Like that's, that's, the, I, I, that's all I want. All of that will like, get want, revamped man. as well. The meme will have to be completely upgraded. Is that too much to ask? I think, yeah, I think um, the meme was prophetic, really. <laughs> I just want transhumanist, intergendered, <laughs> uh, I don't know, DMT producers to defend their factory with 3D printed railguns with plans downloaded off the dark net and bought with quantum resistant private Bitcoin. On, on AI uh, drones. Oh, shit, yeah. Operated operated by um, quantum computing AI systems. Yeah. That's a go. lot of words to put into one meme now. Yeah, that's a, that's that we definitely gotta gotta work on that a little bit. Um, yeah. let's uh, let's finish up with AI. We're coming into to, to the turn of the hour, 15 minutes until one. Um, have you been playing with AI body? A little bit. Um, not as much as I feel like I should, but uh... The, the one thing that I, I tried the other day was to download some GitHub where it's like, hey, you can uh, you can run your own uh, GPT model, your own AI model, and have access to all the stuff privately. And it was basically just a scam. They were just like, there was some kind of malicious link embedded into their code. But uh, yeah, so like if anyone out there is like, oh, hey, I can run my own AI and have my own chat GPT run locally. Um, you can't do that because you need access to the many, many terabytes of information um, that that the GPT model has access to whenever it responds. Like, cause you know, it's got to store that information somewhere. Um, so it, it needs like a huge amount of, of data for it to like access index data for it to access when it creates a response for you. But uh, no, I haven't, I haven't like really gotten deep into it playing with AI. Uh, my understanding was that, so yes, in order to train it, you need a huge amount of data and a huge amount of, huge amount of compute, which is getting cheaper, but Still, you can you need data and big computers to train it. But once you train a model, it's basically like a little linguistic um, uh, neocortex. Like it's a little brain that has all these sort of relationships between words, and it actually compresses a, a good amount of that data. So you can download like a five to ten uh, gigabyte model that runs on RAM that um, that is a little consciousness. But it, but but yes, for it for that little language model that little consciousness to actually have something to talk about you need to feed it data and so you do have to build a, a database to uh for it to talk to and then you can be like ask it questions about it at the database um so yeah that's an interesting problem but i think i think you know as far as i know i don't know if you know how much uh the text all the text in the world weighs you know i think it's it's not that much um worth Googling, but it's it's definitely within affordable storage, right? So even if it was like 10 terabytes of, of text data, right? If you just downloaded all the written works, all the literature, all the academic journals, all the papers, all the text in the world, you just downloaded it and had like a local copy of that. And then you have one of these little local AI brains, right? Um, and then you give it access to your own personal hard drive and, and, and data and you, and you could trust it. It was open source and you could know that it's not going to fuck you. Right. 
um, then suddenly it gets really interesting, right? Because you have this little assistant, you could do voice to text and you could, you could just speak to a microphone and, and one AI layer will trans will transform that into text and then that'll run through the text sort of AI system and come back with an answer and speak back to you. And suddenly we have Jarvis, you know, locally run that is interested in serving you because if, if it pisses you off, you can delete it. I think that's cool. You know, I literally for myself, but I've been too lazy to get around to it. I, I will get to it one day. Yeah, I mean, in 10 terabytes is really isn't that much. Like, I think you can get an eight terabyte, uh, like an eight terabyte SSD now for, I think it's about $400. So, I mean, it's doable. I don't think, like, the problem is that it's also monetizable, that no one wants to share their code. So it's like it's hard. It's going to be hard to like find anyone willing to to post that as an open source project. There's a, there's a ton of it. There's a website called Hugging Space that has like Facebook released Lambda One, which is their their version of ChatGPT. They didn't release the weights, but the weights got leaked like half an hour afterwards. And then they they released Lambda Two, which is pretty much ChatGPT Four. Uh, it's open source. I, they probably didn't release the weights, but the weights are going to get leaked, or people will just create new weights. So if you go to huggingface.com, it's a huge repository of open source uh, AI. Open source AI is already as big and as competitive as uh, ChatGPT probably is. Um, so I'm actually very optimistic on that. And I've, I've seen a lot of models that- So um, the, the models are like, yeah, once to run a model that already has the way it's calculated is, is like almost trivial. Like, I'm pretty sure like any um, solid desktop computer can do it. Uh, you know, like one of the Threadripper processors with a good GPU. Um, but it's the, you know, it's it's all the other database information. Are you aware of like, are there open source places where you can download, you know, the terabytes that you need to actually, you know, as you're running the model itself so that the model can access the database and give you coherent answers? Like, is that available? Because I haven't looked into that. I think, I, I don't know. I don't know if you need to have, the, you probably need to have the data formatted and structured in a certain way. But there's definitely like if you go to X Archive, uh, I think it's called. Uh, there's definitely data dumps, like terabytes of, of of internet data that have been collected for this purpose that you can download. I'm pretty certain of that. There's also like uh, various archive uh, websites, like you know archive.org, for example, but also like uh, the the Nakamoto Institute, who which archive all of Satoshi's writings, right? So you can download that. You definitely need to treat the data. And I think the, the reality of the AI, mar AI markets is that the data is the gold, right? So what what's really, really useful and valuable, turns out it's the data, right? Like these consciousness would, could, will, this digital AI consciousness will, will or intelligences will continue to uh, evolve and they'll be useful and powerful, but, but without the data, they're not that useful. However, you can apply it to your own data, right? Like if you like that, that alone is is I think interesting from a from a user experience perspective. You don't have to chat or type into a keyboard anymore. Just talk to a robot, and the robot will control the computer for you. You know, if 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 it, it's not that different from a mouse or a keyboard, right? Just a lot more useful. But yeah, I think I'm pretty sure you can download a lot of these things. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into a little bit more because you're right. Without the data, it's just a brain that doesn't really know anything. You know, it's just talking smack. But uh, hey, do you remember Watson. Yeah. I do remember Watson. Watson was this like Jeopardy robot. This was years ago. This was like almost a decade ago, I think. He uh, he would listen to questions. He would respond. Uh, so like apparently they've had something quite good for quite a long time. 
but uh yeah i guess yeah. finally we're all getting watson in our in our computers finally dude i can't wait i think we're like maybe a couple of years three or four years max from that like where you just you're you're just going to download a, a linux operating system that comes with an ai built in and uh that's going to be fantastic yeah all right. Well, I mean, I could talk about AI all day. Unfortunately, we uh, Zvetsky couldn't make it last time, and so we we couldn't have that show. Uh, he's actually building a a Satoshi Nakamoto bot, uh, AI bot that that has like the literature of the world of F history plus all of Satoshi's writings plus a bunch of other sort of maxi uh, literature, right? And so this bot would be like a really good orange peeling bot, but potentially be good at other things as well. And uh, yeah, I wanted to have him on and talk about it, but he couldn't make it. He got caught up in the in, in the airport and such. So hopefully we'll have him on. I think he just rescheduled, so we'll have him on a few weeks again. Um, but yeah, AI is very exciting, and I think you know my my basic thesis, and I think we'll end on this. Um, the the fiat world, what it does is it steals innovation from the world in order to defend, you know. The, the the defend itself from other societies basically right like that's the basic general thesis right fiat money was created by the british empire basically to to fund a, an unpopular war uh and that was like world war one world war two and then basically the fiat world was created fiat democratic systems right and so you you inflate the money so you can fund military to defend yourself from the military that's funded by the fiat currency of your neighbors, right? And that's the game that we're kind of in, trapped in. Uh, but it also, that, that, that inflation and that, that monetary creation is actually only valuable because society continues to innovate, right? So every time somebody invents a new tool or a new technology that makes everybody more efficient, that efficiency should be reflected in the value of money. In other words, with sound money, the innovations of, 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 of individuals would uh, add value, add purchasing power to your money because your 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 money is not just your energy; is your energy as exchangeable for other goods and services, which in an innovative economy are getting cheaper over time. So, so your money should increase in purchasing power over time if it's sound, if it's good money. But what these fiat currencies do is they steal as much as they can from that innovation through inflation, while uh, not stealing so much that people revolt, right? Like they're literally just walking that line between like uh, stealing as much as they can before they get hung or or lynched, right? And so that that's that's the game they're playing. And 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 but that you know with something like Bitcoin, that game becomes visible because you know uh, these fiat currencies continue to devalue against hard money. So if you want to capture the value of all these technologies, this this uh, highly innovative technologies in the era of of hyper innovation and singularity, which is basically what we're on. We're in a technological logarithmic curve of innovation. Uh, then you have to have sound money. You basically have to have a sound money storage because that'll manage to keep a good amount of that value that's being innovated compared to, to fiat currency. So that's my rant. Thank you everybody for joining. Uh, it's been a good show. I appreciate you all listening and tune in for the next show which let me tell you in a second who is going to join us next week uh, da, da, da. 
Next week, we have Turd Mister. Uh, Turd Mister, he's kind of a legend in Bitcoin land and Bitcoin Twitter. He's uh, an analyst and an investor. Uh, and we're going to be talking about economics for sure and technological trends and probably the price again and how to navigate it. And we'll probably get into some of the risk management topics that we mentioned earlier today uh, on how to actually navigate with a little bit more sophistication and 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 care how to navigate this these financial waves of of bitcoin so uh check that out stay tuned for that we at bitcoinnews.org should be i think there you guys we already tweeted that out i'll I'll put it out in the nest and i'll I'll tweet it out on my profile so you guys don't miss it uh so make sure you hit the reminder for that and um yeah thanks everybody for joining us thank you buddy for uh for co-hosting with me today really appreciate that and um yeah sure thing man thanks for having me on awesome thank you all for listening you know i think this was a great conversation very interesting uh sadly tomer had the disconnection halfway through the show and so we had to continue the conversation without him but we'll definitely have him back on to go into some of these topics in more depth in the future so definitely stay tuned uh follow bitcoinnews.com and bitcoinnews.com on twitter And if you want to get uh, future announcements and details about future shows, sign up at juangal.com to the newsletter where I promote and and communicate about future shows and podcasts and let people know kind of my thoughts after the fact on the podcasts and so on. So definitely check that out. Stay tuned. There's a lot more to come from this show and a lot of very interesting guests. Next weekend, we have Tour de Meester who's an economist and investor and trader. So we're going to be talking about the economy and the Bitcoin price. And uh, he's a brilliant guy, so I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Um, So yeah, stay tuned and come along with us. Y'all have a good day.